and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show... It's been more the sense that it's been taken from them and their sense of injustice that this life that they had either begun to experience or had experienced was was unfairly taken from them. When the career of a professional sports person ends or when it's taken away too early. And how would you define frailty? You'll hear how most of us have the wrong idea of what it means to live with a frail condition. But first on the show... I was busy getting ready for work, getting the kids ready for school, the usual rushing around in the morning routine. Uh, And then I suddenly felt a little bit confused. I wasn't sure what I was doing all of a sudden. This is Victoria. Victoria is a single mum of two who works full-time running a business. Her life can get pretty hectic sometimes. But then in January this year, something happened that she never expected. I had trouble controlling one of my arms and I had a strange sensation in my face. Uh, And being 39, I didn't for a moment think that I could possibly have been having a stroke. Victoria initially brushed off her symptoms as either low blood pressure or maybe that she was starting to get a migraine. But she knew something was wrong. So I took myself straight away off to the doctor, but I drove myself there, which in retrospect was was silly, but I didn't for a minute think that is what could have been happening. When she arrived at the doctor's, her GP immediately called her an ambulance. I was really, really scared. Really scared. Um, I was lying down in the GP's office and I could hear the sound of the ambulance coming and I was thinking, I I cannot believe that that ambulance is coming for me. Being a single parent and the sole provider for my kids, you can imagine the sorts of things that were going through my my mind and it was just shocking because I'd thought about stroke and I was aware of stroke but I'd always thought of it in the context of something that might happen to my mum. You know, my mum's age, being in her late 60s, I never would have thought that that could have happened to me. One in six men and one in five women in Australia will experience a stroke at some point in their lives equaling to one person every nine minutes. Stroke kills more men than prostate cancer and more women than breast cancer. And what you may not know is stroke doesn't just affect older populations. You know, these statistics really speak for themselves in terms of the public health burden that this places. Caleb Ferguson is an expert on stroke from the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's also an ambassador for the National Stroke Foundation. I think that for a lot of time and for many decades, stroke's taken a a back seat. And one of the things that's come from these guidelines is really setting the standard of care. On Monday, Caleb travelled to Parliament House in Canberra for the launch of the new national clinical guidelines for stroke management. 
the guidelines taking information and research from the Stroke Foundation, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals and consumers detail 250 recommendations for stroke treatment across the spectrum of healthcare. This covers care from ambulance to hospital, rehabilitation and then adjustment to home and everyday life. Caleb welcomes the new guidelines, but is concerned by how long it took to update them, with the last update being back in 2010. There's a few really key changes um, in terms of recommendations within the clinical practice guideline that were really due to be sort of updated in there. A lot of them are related to sort of the hyperacute treatment of strokes. These include things like the administering of thrombolysis, which is a blood thinner that helps to dissolve clots in blood vessels, or another practice called clot retrieval, which uses a mechanical instrument to remove a blood clot from the brain. Although these have been practised since the guideline update in 2010, Caleb says we are quickly making leaps and bounds in medical practice, and those changes need to be updated as soon as possible. In the Lancet back in, I think, around about 2011, 2012, so we're talking over five years ago, and this showed that patients that are admitted to a stroke unit that have a simple swallow screen... A swallow screen is to test whether a patient can swallow properly, whether that be their food or saliva. Have their fever managed and their blood glucose managed. Do a lot better in terms of outcomes after stroke. So that's now taken, you know, five years now for us to get this recommendation made in national clinical guidelines so that all of the clinicians that care for patients with acute stroke across the nation um, should really be practising in accordance to that high-level evidence. Educating physicians to practice in accordance with these new guidelines has already begun. They've been aware of the fact that an update was coming as it was being written over the past two years. But adjusting to these changes would be made much easier if the Australian government developed a national strategy to fight stroke, which we currently don't have. And Caleb says that's well overdue, given the Howard government called stroke a national health priority more than 20 years ago. And I guess when often you speak to ministers that a Commonwealth or federal uh, level, the first thing they'll say is health is the responsibility of a state um, parliament and uh, a state-based health minister. Though often if you talk to uh, a health minister at state level, if it's something that's sort of needing a national coordinated approach, then they'll say that actually belongs in the, the Commonwealth department. In terms of developing a national health strategy to fight stroke, what does that strategy look like to you? Like, I think um, it would really also address sort of some of the preventative measures for stroke. So people are sitting for longer and are more inactive. Healthy sort of balanced diet would be a lot of them. Going back to sort of rates of smoking, um, we've seen smoking rates reduced considerably since some of the government intervention in terms of plain packaging and, and taxis on cigarettes. But then I guess also thinking about some of the non-modifiable risk factors, so around about diabetes, hypertension and atrial fibrillation and having really robust programmes for them around about um, screening and management of those common risk factors. And also developing more specialised stroke centres within public hospitals. As Caleb says, only having four hospitals in New South Wales offering therapies like thrombolysis, is a number too small. And I guess 
the complexity around that is having a service that offers the service 24 hours a day and is staffed by a specialist neuroradiologist. So if at a minimum for a service, there needs to sort of probably be around three to four of these working at that hospital. But there is probably a lack of funding to sort of develop these services and to offer that. So what we really probably need is a comprehensive document in terms of tackling the public health burden of stroke as well. A national strategy would also help to debunk some of the false ideas that stroke only affects older populations and also educate people that dealing with a stroke event just after it happens isn't the end of care. Here's Victoria. The impacts of that on my life as a single parent were not being able to look after my children, needing to rely on family and friends. Emotionally, it's a very difficult thing to deal with, even though I was very lucky to have not had long-term physical consequences. But emotionally, you know, looking at sole carer for children and being afraid to be alone with my kids in case it happened again and what if I couldn't, you know, I've got a little boy, he's only three, what if I couldn't look after him? But I'm quite passionate about spreading the message about firstly making sure that you can recognise the signs and if you're having neurological changes, any changes with your face or someone who, you know, can't lift their arms to act fast because it is possible to have a stroke at a younger age, it does happen. And then ensuring that even if you are on the younger age scale that you do talk to your doctor about the risk factors and you do actively take steps to address those. Victoria ending that story. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR. I'm Jake Morecambe. You watch them on the TV, you cheer or boo them at the stadium, and for many young kids, you look up to them. The life of a professional athlete is one of perseverance, hard work, glory, and often a loss. But what comes after you've played your last game, or run your last race? An event held at the University of Technology Sydney called UTS Speaks Athletic Excellence is taking a closer look at what it takes to reach the top in the pro sporting world, and in one particular talk, making peace with the end of your career, which for some isn't always easy. I caught up with Toby Newton-John, who will be speaking at the event. One of them, straight off the bat, is the idea that sport in competition, it's a very black and white outcome. You win or you lose. There can be an enormous investment in that dichotomous outcome. And, of course, in life, things are rarely black and white like that. There are many more shades of grey and nuances than a simple win or lose kind of outcome. And that can be enormously psychologically damaging for somebody who's invested an enormous amount of themselves and their time and their energy in order to, in effect 
lose in order to affect fail. So the idea, even just from a starting point, that when you invest heavily in something which has a kind of a simplistic, if you like, outcome, doesn't necessarily set somebody up very well for managing the the slings and arrows of, of normal adult life, where the nuances are far more subtle than you win or you lose. Say a professional athlete loses... In what form does that distress kind of present itself? Is it in sadness? Is it in lack of motivation typically? All of those things and problematically mostly in terms of um, self-criticism, self-punitive reflection that that person is at risk of becoming highly self-critical, highly self-analytical in a non-productive way. So there's certainly one of the things that sport teaches us is to how to lose and how to lose well and how to reflect in a, in a healthy way on what we might do better next time or what we can learn from the experience in order to grow and develop in some sort of way. And that's, you know, hopefully in, is the, the, the more typical response. But it also predisposes somebody to incredible self-critical thinking and sense of inadequacy and incompetence Taking this to the next step, when it comes to the end of a professional athlete's career, is that something that you typically prepare for? I think that's something that's increasingly being recognised, thank goodness, is that, yes, there needs to be a, a, a transition process from competing as one's primary focus to then moving to, well, what, what next in life and how to do that next? It lessens what's been described as like a grief process of, of you know, the loss of one's competitive self and how to then grow and develop one's post-competitive self and how to do that successfully. And how do you make that transition? I guess the, the starting point to that is by thinking about it, by being aware that this will come to an end and what consideration the athlete has about what they will do when it comes to an end. Again, what's difficult is you don't know when that might be. It could be prematurely ended through injury. It could be a career that continues far longer than, than the person expected it would be. Tennis players often be an example of that. But the preparation in terms of whilst competing, looking at alternative career choices, looking at the opportunities to study, developing social networks that may facilitate then transitioning out of competitive life into uh, post-competitive life. And so with a number of athletes that I've seen in the clinical context, one of their biggest psychological hurdles has been the ability to give up the expectation of themselves being able to compete. Their identity gets very, very fused with themselves as a competitor and somebody who's in that social circle and their friendship groups and so on are all based around that. And if you're injured, you no longer are able to compete, your loss isn't just that you're no longer winning prizes or winning events. Your loss is much more profound than that. Do you say that some are eager to give it up? To be honest, not the ones that I've seen, no. It's been more the sense that it's been taken from them and their sense of injustice that this occurred is a, a real sense of um, unfairness that this life that they had either begun to experience or had experienced from it was, was unfairly taken from them. And that's, um, again, psychologically a really difficult place to be. How about even the psychology of being a professional athlete? There is so much that goes into that that is physically strenuous, emotionally and mentally strenuous. How much do we craft them to get to that point only to take it away from them again? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And that's, I think, in many cases very true. You, to be a successful lead athlete, you have to have a number of those qualities already. I think they're not things that can be sort of developed without there already being a very strong sense of discipline, strong sense of um, organization, being able to manage time and so on. 
But yes, it's it's one of the dilemmas I guess we're focusing on here is that what works really well for you as an athlete can work very badly for you as a as a social being, as a as a co-worker in a in a team, that kind of thing, depending on the situation. And being a competitive athlete, even when you're in a team, but particularly if you're competing individually, is that you're very self-focused. You you spend a great deal of your time and energy on yourself, and uh, maximising your your capacity and your ability and so on. And whilst that's absolutely as it should be for the purposes of of competing, obviously that's not ideal when it comes to other aspects of life. We may have touched on this, but how about taking away the other side, which is the 3 a.m. wake-up calls, jumping into the pool, jumping on the field, you having that strict timeline to to be physical and keep your endurance and health up. If you take that away from someone, I know if I don't go for a run for two weeks – I feel a bit slumped. That must be a pretty rough transition too. Oh, for sure. There's very good evidence that exercise has important qualities for mood and, in fact, can be a treatment for depression in certain cases, a purely exercise-based intervention for depression. So, yes, flipping the other way around, if you take the exercise away, um, the propensity to have um, mood deteriorate, and it sort of taps into this thing about that's that's who I am. I, I'm an athlete. I compete that's what my friends know of me. That's how I relate to people around that. And when that goes, either through injury or, or natural sort of aging and competitive, that can be very, very difficult for people to maintain. On the upside, a lot of elite athletes are by nature very disciplined and very, very good at time management, setting goals for themselves and so on. So being able to transition out of doing that for competition and doing it more for lifestyle and wellness um, factors, they often can make that transition th- through the natural discipline that they've already got. When we're looking at this transition period to help athletes, what support services are typically out there? In terms of general mental health, I, I suspect it's still it's largely is in society that we, we wait till things go wrong and then we intervene rather than looking more preventatively. And, and that's maybe an area that we could do better with. From my personal take on it is that in many ways, professional athletes and particularly looking at things like rugby league, rugby union, soccer, you know, the big sports in this country, cricket, are actually leading the way in terms of destigmatizing mental health. It feels to me that athletes in those fields are becoming increasingly confident to be able to talk about the difficulties that they have with uh, mental health and that that slowly is becoming less and less stigmatised. And I was reading something the other day where there's a reference made to, well, the rugby league players can talk about it now, so it must be okay. So it feels to me like we actually, there's, there's some positive changes happening when it comes to tough athletes don't cry kind of idea and that that's becoming more more recognized that those tough athletes are also human beings and and they're going to struggle like all of us struggle at times. Toby Newton-John, Senior Lecturer in Clinical Psychology at the University of Technology, Sydney. When you think of someone who is frail, you might have a pretty clear visual of who that person is perhaps an older person using a walking frame or a cane. But someone with a frail condition doesn't always mean that they're old. It might be because they have more serious health complications. Julie McDonough from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, is looking at the link between heart failure and frailty and says we still have a way to go when it comes to changing the common perception of a person with a frail condition. 
So frailty is defined as little resistance, but it's really a syndrome of increased vulnerability. So people that are frail are not as well equipped to be able to overcome stressor events like having an infection or having a fall. So if people that are frail have something like that happen to them, they're not able to overcome it as well as someone who's not frail. And even if they do overcome that event, then they don't really get back to their baseline of what they were before. Um, We already know that they have much higher rates of hospitalisation and death as well. So the term frailty, people kind of just associate it. I guess they get an image in their head about what someone who's frail looks like. But the easiest way to think about it is, yeah, this increased vulnerability that people have. What tends to be the typical onset of someone experiencing frailty or or a frail condition? So that one's a little bit harder to answer because the thing with frailty is there actually isn't really a universal definition that's been agreed on. Really, people could become frail or they might be assessed as frail just uh, sort of in an informal way when they go into hospital. But certainly in the past decade, it's become much more of a hot topic, I guess, and something that across many disciplines, like whether it's cardiovascular disease or people going in for surgery or kidney failure or many other chronic conditions, we're starting to measure frailty now. So a lot of the study in the general sort of sense, they often look at people just over 65 years of age. But in my area, looking in in heart failure, actually we're seeing that people can be much younger and be frail, not just only associated with age, because they've got such a chronic condition with their heart that can cause symptoms of frailty as well. A frailty measurement instrument, Mm. what is that? So the main one that is used is this one which is called the freed phenotype. So it looks at weight loss, physical activity, muscle strength, energy level and walking speed. And if someone's positive to three out of those five measures, then they're considered frail. The work that's been done has shown that people that have heart failure, and we can assess them as frail, is that then their outcomes are much worse. So we're seeing that they have much higher rates of rehospitalization. So a couple of years ago, I did an analysis about people with heart failure that were assessed as frail, and at six months, um, their rehospitalization and um, rates of death, and they were much, much higher in people that had frailty. So really, we're finding that if we can assess people as frail, and we know that they're going to have worse outcomes, as part of my PhD. I'm trying to look at what's the best measurement tool to use in heart failure because we haven't agreed on that yet and we don't really know. But we need to find that out first and then we can move on to there has been some studies done that have shown that frailty can actually be reversed in people with heart failure. How so? So there's been a study done from one of my colleagues um, at St Vincent's Hospital which has looked at if people with advanced heart failure are assessed as frail and they have a heart transplant, then measured 12 months, roughly 12 months after they've had their transplant, then their frailty is reversed. They're not frail anymore. So that kind of looks into what we're saying is frailty isn't just associated with old age because a lot of those people would be younger, um, that they're frail because their heart is not working and then that's making them frail. For the purpose of the research, it's looking at bettering cardiovascular health or addressing frailty. Which, which one are you trying to tackle headfirst? Yeah, overall is to improve the management of cardiovascular disease or improve the care of people with cardiovascular disease. Because we know that it's very common that people are frail with this condition, being able to properly identify that and hopefully with later research to put in strategies to improve it, that is overall going to benefit um, people with cardiovascular disease. But it's been shown in other patients, like general geriatric patients, which are older patients, that exercise programs can help to 
with muscle reconditioning can help to improve frailty. There's been some um, conditional recommendations from a report from the Asia-Pacific frailty recommendations that um, giving um, vitamin D can also help to improve frailty. There's been a link that people that are frail have low vitamin D levels. So as I've been getting into the research more in my PhD, seeing that frailty generally not just in cardiovascular disease is certainly um, such a huge problem. Like a paper looking at frailty describes it as the most problematic expression of population ageing. So with our ageing population, people are living longer because there's more treatments that they're getting. So it's certainly going to be something that will continue to be a, a problem that um, we're trying to face and strategies to put in to improve it. Julie McDonough, PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. For more information, you can also check out our website, 2ser.com. This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.